All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to V Brown Bag. Tonight, we're going to hit a, a new topic, at least new to me and maybe new to a lot of you who are watching this either live or recorded after the fact, data engineering. And we have AWS hero Elliot Cordo joining us tonight. Did I say your last name right, Elliot? Is it Cordo? Yes, you did. All I right. Did. Awesome. So I'm going to hand it over to Elliot in just a moment here. But before we do, a few housekeeping notes. Uh, this show is being recorded live. If you're in our audience tonight, please remember, uh, Ask your questions via the Q&A, not chat, or you can just hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag VBrownBag. In fact, you can use that hashtag anytime. If you have any questions for anybody who's been on here, you could tweet them, you could use this hashtag. Or if you have a topic that you want to talk about sometime, uh, you wanna share your story, your, your knowledge with the community, hit us up, you can use the hashtag VBrownBag. You could tweet directly at me or the VBrownBag account. I'm Ken Nelbon, I'm at Ken Nelbon on Twitter or at VBrownBag on Twitter. Great way to reach us. Um, this is our schedule on the right here as well. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you think you'd like to attend live, right now we, this is re being recorded on the US show, which is 7.30 p.m. Central every Wednesday. We have other shows in other time zones and even other languages. So check out the one that's most applicable to you. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to you, Elliot. Let me hit the stop share button and you can take it away. All right, I see your screen. All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight, I'm gonna to take you on a whirlwind tour of data engineering. So a little about me, um, you know, I've uh, been doing data engineering for about, and back in engineering for about two decades, a little longer than I'd like to admit. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I currently am working with uh, Capsule, which is the, a digital company. It's a pharmacy that works for everyone. I'm also an AWS Data Hero, part of their community program. Um, you know, my experience ranges from, before that ranges from uh, big enterprise companies to small early stage startups, kind of helping solve uh, mainly data engineering problems. So the purpose of today's talk is to really um, you know, kind of do a, do an overview of data engineering, kind of uh, demystify some of the terms that you might hear, um, give you an overview of what it actually takes to build a data platform, which is the, the main work of, uh, you know, a data engineer. And uh, we'll even talk about like some career pathing uh, and, you know, to some specific personas in terms of uh, folks that might want to change over to the data engineering profession. So this is really hopefully gonna give people a comprehensive idea of what it's like to be an engineer. And uh, I'm really covering things, you know, uh, both as a data engineer and also as a, as a hiring manager. Like these are the sort of things uh, that I'd want an engineer coming into my organization to know. So I think it's really useful. Uh, hopefully uh, you find it so, and hopefully uh, you consider uh, data engineering as a career. So first off, you know, what is data engineering? I, I think, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of people would describe it in different ways. I like to describe it as plumbing. So we are plumbers and, and being a plumber uh, in data engineering is, is actually a pretty cool job. It's actually, uh, you know, pretty sexy, I feel, because what you're doing is you're taking like all these raw elements of data, all this raw data, and you're actually making something super valuable, um, something that we call like a, like a data product. So, uh, you know, taking raw data, acquiring it, uh, transforming it, and then storing it in a way that, it, that it's really valuable. And, and what are data products? So, um, 
you know, a very common product or a very common kind of like endpoint end of a data engineering exercise is going to be an analytic one. So you're thinking about like data lakes and data warehouses, um, building reports, right? Um, and we're going to cover some of these things in detail later on in the presentation. But also like automating ML and data science pipelines, uh, enabling marketing technologies, um, you know, kind of functions such as revenue management, royalty calculation, even cash management. These are all like data products. Um, building a robust customer profile. Um, and uh, even CRM interactions, like building a customer relationship management system and getting all the data that's needed to really uh, have a 360 of your customer. Like these are all like products produced by data engineering and, and many more products. Tonight, we're mainly gonna focus on the kind of most common kind of analytic products at the top. So we're gonna talk a lot about like the data platform. And the reason we're gonna focus on it is where the work gets done. So the data platform is, it should be considered that factory that creates those data assets that I just mentioned. So as a data engineer, building, maintaining, and integrating a data platform is where you know, you're gonna spend the majority of your time, you know, building this platform, maintaining it, extending it, um, you know, and kind of maturing the data platform um, and using that to kind of manufacture these data assets. So as mentioned, I'm gonna, you know, most of this talk is gonna be an overview of, um, you know, kind of the components of the data platform and how it works. Um, you know, I'm gonna, there's obviously a lot of ways to solve this problem, but I'm going to kind of base this on my experience and kind of my best practices uh, when, when building such a platform. So, you know, uh, I'd consider this, uh, you know, a pretty good way to build a data platform and look at it. Um, and, I, and I'm mainly gonna talk about like four layers today. Um, the first off being ingestion, which is how we acquire data from various source systems and, and get it into our platform. We're gonna talk about like the landing area, um, also known as a data lake in a lot of implementation where we're, we're storing this data. Transformation, which is the really interesting part where we're gonna do a lot of work and things get really, really complex. We're gonna apply business logic, clean, uh, prepare data, and, and basically use that to build our, our target data assets. And then I'm gonna talk about a serving layer, which is you know, kind of the final state of our data assets. In this case, we are gonna consider this uh, data warehouse. Um, in fact, a dimensional one um, with facts and dimensions. And I'll, and I'll try to dive into each of these components and give you an idea of um, how we do these things. So first we're gonna start out with the first layer, which is ingestion. So, Ingestion is comprised of processes that help us acquire data, as as name would it would infer. And you know, data platforms end up accruing a lot of data. I'd say like the average, um, you know, uh, data platform I built probably had dozens of source systems, and in the end, you know, probably thousands of tables and data sets that are used to, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, power of this platform. And these, these are going to come from, uh, you know, two main, two main types. So one is internal, so ones that you have control of. So you're 
going to be integrating with basically services and applications within your organization. And also external sources. And when I say external sources, I'm talking about SaaS platforms, such as your sales forces of the world or uh, your NetSuite or your uh, Adobe Analytics, as well as partners when you're you know, taking in data uh, from other companies um, you know, or, or perhaps subsidiaries of your current company um, into your data platform, into your, into your organization's uh, ecosystem. So the target for ingestion is typically going to be, uh, you know, what we call the landing zone of our data platform. And in, ingestion, at least in modern data platforms, has, you know, kind of a single responsibility of acquiring data, not transforming. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in coming slides and, uh, you know, kind of talk about like the history of, you know, how we've come to that conclusion, building modern data platforms. So Leah, what are some of the kinds of data that we're talking about ingesting here? Are we trying to capture data just for the purpose of this data platform or is it something that is already happening due to existing line of business apps? We figure how oh, we can do something useful with that. Like what's the genesis of this project of data engineering to begin? Yeah, so, so I think, uh, you know, very typically, um, you know, the data that you acquire is driven by like a business use case, right? So, um, you know, to keep it really simple to use an example of like kind of sales reporting, right? Um, you know, sales reporting would drive you to ingest data from several systems, maybe your internal systems, maybe you have some sort of like uh, POS-like or ERP-like system, which is doing transactions with your customers. And that's, that's all great. Uh, but maybe you need, uh, you know, additional metadata from like a CRM in terms of like who these customers are um, when they first joined with us, what channels they like to communicate, right? So to, and, and what channel we use to, to uh, you know, acquire them, right? Which might actually require you to uh, use some analytics data, like which gives you kind of all that preceding information up to one, the time that they sign it. So sign up. So, um, you know, I think like, Typically, uh, this is driven by business case. Um, you know, you don't usually go into an organization and say like, okay, let's just try to like funnel all of the data <laughs> into, you know, your data platform, um, you know, upfront. Uh, you know, I think usually uh, it's, it's usually prioritized by what's needed and, and the use cases, depending on what you're trying to achieve, reporting, uh, uh, customer relationship management, uh, maybe even data that needs to be prepared and, and kind of normalized for like a uh, machine learning project. Cool, thanks. Yeah, that was a very good and thorough answer. Great. So um, for, for the budding uh, data engineers out there, there, there's really two ways that we get data. The batch ingestion is, is probably uh, the most common and uh, most traditional way to get data. And, and it's, it, very easy to understand. Um, it's a job, you know, it's a job that basically acquires data from source system on some schedule. And uh, this job would be scheduled perhaps once a day or even every few minutes. Um, you know, such a, such, when, you, when you're running things like very fast and keeping very tight controls on, on kind of like incrementally acquiring the data that's typically re referred to as a micro batch. But in the end, you know, it is a job that wakes up uh, gets data and and kind of um, you know goes back to sleep and and picks up where it left off. 
So in terms of back batch ingestion, uh, you know, some common sources that you're going to run into um, is uh, probably the most common for organizations is a relational database, right? So the, the databases which underpin our applications, right? So many times, like when, when you know, organizations uh, develop their services, develop their applications, they aren't really thinking about like, hey, like somebody's going to need to get this data out in bulk one day. So uh, as often the case, you know, a data engineer is going to have to go and reach into that relational data, run some batch job that runs like a programmatic SQL statement, and then, you know, basically fetches it, iterates it, um, and collects that data um, for storage in our data platform. <clears throat> and in other cases, either internally, like if those service owners and application owners uh, decided that, hey, we want to build some sort of batch interface for people to collect data, we don't want them touching our databases, but more commonly, external sources, like if you're dealing with a Salesforce or you're dealing with a Amplitude or an Omniture or, you know, any of those kind of like externally hosted systems uh, that, that you probably work with, um, you're typically going to go through an API. Um, so, you know, you're going to be hitting some endpoint, um, walking it, you know, either streaming the results down or if it, if it has pagination, you know, kind of iterating those paginated results to collect data. As a data engineer, and, and these tend to be the more advanced cases, not always where you start, but real-time ingestion is also, um, you know, something that you, that you may run into. And <clears throat> really this is a little different than batch. Instead of like kind of waking up on some, some cron or some schedule, you're, you're basically acquiring the data as a steady stream. So most, most times, <laughs> or, or it might be at least event-driven. Um, you know, so I, I think the most easy uh, or, or uh, common uh, use case for kind of real-time ingestion is gonna be receiving data um, through some sort of messaging system. So, uh, you know, obviously a, a very common one is SQS, which is simple queuing service from AWS. Uh, Kinesis or even uh, Kafka. Um, so essentially you'd be placing yourself in a, as an event consumer, reading that queue um, and kind of pushing those, uh, those kind of data sets down to your, to your kind of landing zone uh, or to your, your data application as soon as possible. Another example of uh, real-time ingestion, which is becoming pretty common is kind of like object storage. Um, you know, so, so Amazon S3 or simple queuing service, uh, essentially having data land there directly, either by your application owners or maybe even third parties, you know, kind of landing this data directly to S3. And obviously, optionally, um, notifications can be triggered by Lambda to go and process that data. Um, you know, there's other examples out there, real-time architecture, you know, kind of front-ending with, with an API in front of your data platform as well, you know, kind of allowing people to push data in via webhooks. But in the end, it usually ends up in a queue um, and the work of, you know, kind of the data engineer kind of starts there. Um, and again, the, the object storage, um, you know, kind of S3 scenario is pretty common as well. So, you know, just Going back to the simple case, the batch job, you know, there's many te techniques and variations on this pretty typical approach, but you're essentially going to iterate a source, whether it's a relational database or it is a API, you're gonna buffer it to memory or local, and you're gonna store the data in landing. And there will be some sort of 
uh, complexity to the storage data strategy and land meeting that we're going to talk about as we get to the next section. So as a data engineer, what tools are you going to use? So this is, uh, you know, changed a lot over, over the past few years, um, I'd say the last decade. Um, and a lot of the work has come back to code. So actually writing, um, you know, jobs as software. Um, and in the data world, Python has become a very popular framework, um, almost a monopoly on, you know, kind of, you know, managing that in just way. There's also, uh, thankfully, a lot of tools that have come up on the market that have pre-built integrations to um, these, these uh, external systems, especially when you're going outside, you know, when you're going to the net suites and the Salesforce, there's a lot of complexity in dealing with those systems and dealing with their APIs. So there's a lot of systems that are new, what I call like new school, uh, you know, kind of ingestion systems or uh, acquisition systems, as I'd, I'd call them, uh, Stitch and Fivetran are, are good examples. And, you know, they, they give you basically managed pipelines of your data uh, into your data platform. And, uh, you know, many new SaaS applications are actually making it even easier. And, and much like I described in terms of like delivering data to S3, um, they magically deliver the data to your landing zone. So they kind of, uh, you know, make the acquisition um, layer of the of this uh, almost trivial, right? And there's even more stuff coming out in terms of even, um, you know, AWS and, and cloud providers uh, creating integrations which, which allow you to easily acquire data from certain sources and internal services. So, you know, as a data engineer, just one pro tip, I know that's pretty, uh, you know, kind of early in your data engineering career, or at least the consideration, um, you know, is avoiding undifferentiated work. You know, we do have to write a lot of code, but there are a lot of, of ways of working with companies as well as tools on the market that will uh, keep you from writing a lot of code that's better saved for more interesting layers of, of the data platform, which we'll, we'll talk about. So the next area we're gonna talk about is the uh, landing zone. So the landing zone is an area that stores all of your raw data. I think of it as kind of like the, the foundry or kind of like, like, I don't wanna use warehouse, too many times it'll warehouse for all those raw materials. And um, you know, generally it's, it's kind of immutable, meaning that we really try not to change data that lands there. And uh, this is for a few reasons, and I'll talk a little bit about a paradigm shift that's happened in kind of data engineering over the past decade. So um, downstream processes can make mistakes. So if you actually take data and you process it and you apply filters, you apply calculations before you land it to your, to your um, landing area, uh, you've now you know, kind of uh, propagated that mistake into your source data and it can be very difficult to fix. In fact, some systems, like think about your uh, a clickstream provider, is not going to maintain that data within their system forever or might not be able to deliver it to you again. So you might have damaged data and it's unrecoverable. It's a irreversible mistake. Very similar thing is that even if we don't really manipulate the data too much, but we kind of like discard data and attributes that we, we don't need today, um, you know, we're, we're going to find that they might be helpful in the future. So again, like even if that data is recoverable, do we really want to reprocess it again to like project a few more columns or include a few more columns in our data? 
Um, so again, like in the end, what we try to do is, you know, keep our raw data relatively immutable. Once you write the data, we don't overwrite it. And kind of like this paradigm also has like a good collateral kind of improvement that we can observe changes. We can see the same data come in maybe as updates and kind of uh, it can be really interesting from a data engineering perspective to kind of compute the deltas. Like some of those things might be business events, right? Like a, like a customer um, uh, switching their home address, right? Um, you know, and, and getting back to like why this paradigm's kind of changed over the years is, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, is storage used to be expensive and the only place that you could put stuff is a relational database. And since that's changed, our kind of attitude is storage has gotten cheaper. We have a lot of like interesting ways to store semi-structured data or really wide data. Um, you know, we've kind of changed that paradigm and, and kind of made, you know, kind of acquisition in the landing area relatively pure. They have the responsibility of acquiring data and saving all data. So where are we gonna store this data? What technologies are involved? So a very traditional way to do it, and, and sometimes it's the right solution, is good old relational database. Um, also known as like a staging area or a ODS, which is uh, known as a uh, operational data store. And this still scenario still makes sense if all your sources are relational and the data is small, right? If your environment is made up as po of Postgres databases and you decide to build a small Postgres like data platform or data warehouse is a perfectly reasonable um, way to kind of manage this. But more generally these days, we are using a data lake approach, which is, uh, you know, using an object store such as Amazon S3 to store our data. So for those of you who aren't yet um, huge Amazon S3 fans like I am, um, it is a, a simple service that does remarkable things. So S3 is, uh, you know, an abbreviation for simple storage service. And basically what it is, is it's, it's a file system. It's an object store that can hold any, any type of data structured or unstructured, um, and it's highly available, durable, and performant. And best off, it's uh, inexpensive. And it's integrated with a lot of AWS services. So again, coming back to like how we ingest data and you know, kind of notifying on arrival and triggering other processes, um, this stuff all comes for free. And uh, you know, I think um, for those of you who kind of remember big data and the word Hadoop, like the thing that made Hadoop fam famous with HDFS, which is functionally very similar to S3. Um, and, um, you know, it's uh, a really uh, important foundational building block from most systems. Or in other cloud providers, whether you be on Google or Amazon, they're equivalent, or uh, Azure, uh, they have equivalents as well. So file system, data lakes seem really easy. I will not, uh, you know, kind of, use the data swamp analysis analogy, but you know, instead I'll talk about like what you should do if you're gonna have a data lake. Um, is really, it's important to keep things organized and performance. Um, you know, and the things you wanna think about are, are bucketing key structures and partitioning schemas, which I'll talk a lot about. And, and you know, the reason we wanna do this stuff is, you know, organization uh, helps in regard to data discoverability, right? So if you have really well-defined kind of like naming conventions and structures and, and subfolderings or as it's called in S3 keys, 
um, you can make the data really accessible to downstream processes, whether it be data science or that downstream data warehouse. Um, and uh, again, like things like partitioning schema uh, can have a, a really positive effect on performance. So to give just a really quick example, you know, I have this S3 bucket. It's my internal landing bucket for my org. So maybe my org's internal data, not partner data, not third-party uh, or SaaS data. Um, within it, I have some sales data. And that sales data has been partitioned um, the DT equals and then year, month, and date by date. And depending on how the data arrives, what's most optimal uh, from a performance perspective, you could be placing your data, your files, uh, inside this date partition, either by the time it arrived, which is most common, or perhaps like even a business date, which is a little harder, and, and uh, but sometimes it makes a lot of sense. And really the beauty of this is other than like, hey, discoverability, like I know exactly what I'm looking at. I'm looking at my org sales data and I'm looking at it for uh, particular dates and date ranges is that the tools that sit on top of this, right? Whether it be, um, you know, your kind of data warehouse or, or uh, you know, a big data query engine or even Apache Spark can interpret this date as a virtual column and actually you can use it in your SQL statements. And aside from being convenient, what this does is it actually uh, helps, you know, limit the amount of data that's scanned, um, you know, within, within uh, you know, your kind of data lake. So less data scan means faster and more performing. So in this case, we're only going to grab those subfolders or read the data from those subfolders that exist, uh, you know, from 2020-0101 to 2020-0301. That was the only good part of 2020, by the way. <laughs> So um, we all did learn how to make sourdough starters too. So that was that is that is true. <laughs> um, yeah. So so another important thing, you know, now we're diving into like the data lake, which we thought was going to be really simple, like just this file system that we keep things is file formats. And I think we're familiar with some of these, like the CSV. Um, everybody's familiar with that. It's you know a save as from Excel. Um, that's actually the worst. Um, we try not to store data in CSV format. In fact, you know, going back to what I said, we try not to transform or, or change data much. If we get data in CSV, sometimes we make the decision to actually do a file format conversion because it's such a pain. And why? You add a column, you break something downstream. Um, you change the definition of a column, you change the order of the column. It's just really like fallible from like a schema perspective. Um, JSON's way better. It's it's actually great functionally. Um, it's self-describing. Um, you know, it supports semi-structured data. Like a lot to like about JSON. But really, within our landing area and data engineering, we work with unique file formats. Um, you know, columnar formats are probably the most popular. The two most popular are Parquet and ORC. And you know, the reason we like them is when you line up data, and I should add a diagram for this, uh, column-wise, rows start, you know, like columns across rows look pretty similar, right? So as you think about, you know, kind of if you can compress that data, when things look similar, when data looks similar continuously, it compresses better. <clears throat> Since data across columns usually looks pretty similar, there's all sorts of like really good compression algorithms that can be run on these files to make them smaller. And smaller means faster, less data scanned, 
And they also have some really um, interesting characteristics of only, um, you know, having to read or process the columns that you are actually using in queries or loading uh, programmatically in your process. And then there's these new school file, uh, file formats, Hootie and Delta Lake, which you can do some research on. And <clears throat> just safe to say that they do all the thing the columnar file formats do, but they actually enable database-like behavior. So imagine being able to do updates and inserts on like massive amounts of files. Um, you know, so uh, really cool technology uh, solves other engineering problems too. Uh, just things to be aware of. And, uh, you know, also to kind of illustrate that, you know, this kind of like landing zone actually requires a, a good amount of architecture and engineering, uh, even though in the end, we're just mainly storing files. <clears throat> so the next uh, thing we're gonna cover is uh, transformation. So transformation is really like the factory. This is where we, we turn data into gold. We're making, we're really um, making sure that our data is uh, delivering value. <clears throat> so the work that we're putting in here is data cleansing. You know, we're taking data, we are removing uh, inaccurate values, we're standardizing things, you know, something as trivial, trivial as a phone number. Um, we're trying to get rid of duplicates, duplicates of transactions, duplicates of people. Um, not really get rid of them, but just take them out of our reporting. Um, you know, we are enriching the data, so we're maybe joining that data with other data sets to improve its quality or maybe add attributes. Like again, going back to that, that customer record, like by joining the maybe clickstream data, we can, we can um, you know, kind of enrich it and maybe get like a, like a channel that they came in with us or how many times they used the website. Um, combining disparate data sources, an example there, you know, I think like if you look at you know, if you've been a data analyst and you know, like kind of looking at raw data, you're gonna end up joining together like, you know, 10 plus tables and things aren't quite compatible. You know, what we're doing is we're doing all that work up front um, so that the work can be easier um, on the analysts and the consumers downstream. We're creating custom attributes, we're creating calculations, we're embedding business definitions and logic, we're aggregating, and we're also loading to the certain layer and much, much more. <clears throat> so how does all this magic happen? Um, we, we, you know, currently we, you know, these days use a, use a process called ELT, which is extra, extract, load, and transform. And this kind of, um, you know, acronym traverses acquisition of the acquiring data all the way through transformation. Um, and you know, going back to an older paradigm, which you might have still heard about, which is ETL, which is extract transform load. And you know, just by definition, you've kind of realized, you know, some of the things that I mentioned before in terms of, you know, having single responsibility, acquiring data, landing data, and storing data immutably in, in a safe place. Um, the transform in the middle leads to those problems that I, I spoke about before, which is, you know, hey, what if you got a calculation wrong? Hey, what if you remove some data that you uh, will find useful in the future. So actually ELT has become, you know, kind of the paradigm for modern data platforms. And T is what we're really specifically talking about here. Um, much like acquisition, we're writing jobs as software. Um, 
And generally we're using much SQL. I know there was like a period years ago where we felt like SQL was in its end of days, but SQL is strong. Um, and a lot of these transformations are being expressed in SQL, even if we're using like some high tech technology um, such as Apache Spark. And, uh, you know, we'll talk more about that. Oop. We'll talk more about that um, when we get into kind of like some of the career personas and, and um, things to think about. Um, another thing is that if this is a general, if, if this is a data warehouse use case, um, typically this T and this transformation is typically happening in the target platform. So if we have a Postgres data warehouse, we are doing our transformations probably in that Postgres data warehouse. If we are using a, you know, kind of MPP, uh, massively parallel processing, um, you know, distributed data warehouse, like Amazon Redshift or Snowflake, the transform is happening there. We are using that horsepower under the hood generally. So the frameworks we're using, plain old SQL scripts, maybe we are cloning, you know, in a very simple case, maybe we're cloning some stuff with PSQL. Uh, maybe we are wrapping this in code to do some program, programmatic manipulation of the SQL, um, you know, using good old Psycho PG2 for your Python users. And luckily like tooling is starting to, uh, you know, evolve. Uh, we have a database build tool also known as DBT. Um, you know, which has given us a framework that a lot of organizations are using and standardizing on, which basically gives us a, a more modern modular approach to um, performing transformations in plain old SQL and removing a lot of the boilerplate and kind of like framework that people are doing um, to, uh, you know, kind of do transformations uh, on their platforms. So, Another, uh, you know, kind of meme that I will spare you guys from is the big data. I only talk about large data. Um, you know, for, for larger data sets, um, you know, sometimes we don't do this work on the target platform, on the data warehouse, on the Postgres, on the Snowflake, on the Redshift. And we, you know, are gonna leverage an external platform. Um, it isn't necessarily always for a larger data set. It might be that we, um, you know, want to kind of like the complexity of the transformation we're doing, or maybe we want to map some sort of like uh, ML model against our data. Um, then, you know, we, we may use an external platform or an external framework, um, leveraging our data lake. And, uh, you know, we can use our framework of choice. And, and very often these days, um, it's Spark. Um, but also if it's just the SQL transformation that we just want to scale and take weight off of our data platform, uh, conserve our compute resources, we might be using Presto. We might be using Flink, especially if we're doing like real-time use cases. Um, there's some interesting properties of Flink that allow you to do uh, very cool things in both batch and uh, real-time modes. And of course, good old Hive, which has survived kind of the big data, um, you know, revolution and it's evolution, it's, it's still around and uh, still quite powerful if you are, uh, you know, kind of processing large data sets. Lastly, we're gonna talk about the, the, the icing on the cake, which is a serving layer. So the serving layer, I, I like to describe it, um, you know, as kind of an API for your data product. 
apps, and it might not always be an API, but I like to consider that that um, serving layer this way. Um, and it can take a lot of forms, like depending on what you're building, you know, your 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 endpoint could be an API. It might be as simple as like a data set that we're sending out to some partner or to some, to some external system. Um, and many times it's a data warehouse, which has been like kind of the story we've been following through this, this presentation. So the data warehouse, if you're gonna be a data engineer, is, is likely something that you are going to encounter. And um, you know, basically the concept of, behind a data warehouse is that we're storing data so that um, folks in your organization can access large amounts of data. So if you had 20 source systems and dozens of services and external stuff, this data will all be in one place and they can have access to it in full history. Um, it should be easy to use. So generally, although we're landing and storing this data in kind of like our landing area, we are you know, doing all that transformation that we talked about in the processing layer um, and making the data easy to use, like exposing derived data sets to people. We're putting value into this. We're not just exposing uh, raw data. And we're, we're making it so that it has a lot of governance, it's, it's secure, it's reliable, it's durable. Um, and, and these sort of systems like find a lot of utility for data analysts, of course, like people are gonna build reports, people wanna analyze data, they have a lot less work to do. The work is gonna be more repeatable, less error prone, they're gonna have a single source of the truth. But it turns out that these data warehouses end up being part of you know, a larger data platform often where they're a target, but also you know, because the data is clean, a lot of things are being brought together and, and kind of uh, assembled in such an efficient way. It ends up being useful for other things, like very popular with data scientists. This may be the thing that feeds some of those downstream systems, such as your CRM or your marketing technology systems and uh, you know, um, many more. So uh, there's many schools of thought on how you build data warehouse. And uh, I, some would say there's no wrong way. <laughs> um, I, I am maybe a little old school, um, but I, I still like this concept of the star schema. Um, it's, it, you know, there, there's some very traditional approaches to this. There's, uh, you know, what you probably hear is the Kimball methodology, which is very rigorous, very artful, um, very aesthetic. Um, and, uh, you know, but today we, we primarily practice a variant of that, you know, in a lot of the organizations I've been a part of in kind of my personal style, which is basically a mo modern pragmatic version of the star schema. So for those of you not familiar with the star schema, star schema is just a way of modeling your data. Like these are tables. Like we are creating tables that are derived and very simple. And, you know, at the center of most star schemas is a fact table, like an event table, which has like kind of your, your, your metrics for your business. So this could be your sales stack. This could be a, a fact about communication. So, you know, all the events that, you know, you kind of reached out to somebody through SMS or email marketing, it could be, um, you know, kind of contract transactions. Um, it could be, um, you know, kind of usage of usage of goods. Um, you know, so anyway, any, any data warehouse is gonna have many of these facts. They're all gonna be kind of, uh, you know, the verbs of your organization, the events. And then you'll have a bunch of 
informed dimensions, which you kind of build once, you build a customer cable once with all of the beautiful attributes you might like, and then that's reusable through your data warehouse, and, and which you end up with is a bunch of stars. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, again, like, it's primarily a modern pragmatic approach. You know, if you do decide to dive into, like, kind of Kimball and kind of understand what that's all about, um, the reason we don't do a lot of that stuff anymore is because that is quite an old way of doing things. It actually goes back to like relational databases and you know more primitive relational databases. Um, modern data platforms, it's fine to kind of like flatten things and, and make things really wide and have like you know a fact table or a table with like maybe a hundred or more columns. Um, store strings instead of integers. Like storage is cheap. Um, you know uh, you know platforms and MPP databases have really evolved so. We've, we've gotten a lot more simple, which, which um, you know, makes building these things a lot more productive as well. So if you're gonna build a data warehouse, like where do you do these things? Like what, you know, I mentioned a few technologies such as, such as like relational MVP. Again, like if you have a really small like kind of shop, when you're an early stage startup, like, you know, maybe a relational database is gonna make sense. It might be that same, it's probably gonna be that same database that you built that kind of relational landing zone. <clears throat> but more generally, um, you know, people are using what, again, what are called like these MPP databases, which is massive parallel processing. And what this is, is, you know, rather than having like a single server, a single like kind of relational database that you can only like scale up, MPP databases essentially are like a cluster of machines. So instead of, you know, kind of buying bigger and bigger machines and just keep adding machines to your cluster, you can store and process more and more data. Um, which is generally like kind of a modern engineering paradigm. Um, you know, you eventually run at, run into like the biggest machine you can buy and then you're in trouble. When you scale out, you know that you uh, can, can store and process as much data as you need to. And, uh, you know, the popular choices are, you know, Redshift and Snowflake, both great platforms that I've worked with. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, these are, these are very popular, popular services. Um, for building a data warehouse. <clears throat> and then other times, you know, you might build your data warehouse directly on your data lake. So that transformation layer might be in the data lake. Your serving layer might be in the data lake as well. Um, I think, you know, typically you see kind of a S3 or kind of like um, data lake approach to data warehousing, usually when data sets are really, really large. So if you're like in an ad tech company or a media company and you're just generating like huge amounts of data and the data is largely immutable. Um, uh, I would say it's sometimes uh, less complex in some cases, but I don't want to use that as a rule. Um, you may see a data warehouse built directly on a data lake. Um, and there's obviously like a lot of architectural considerations and decisions, um, you know, if you're going to go down that route and if you have that requirement. Um, much like some of these other platforms, but um, you know, the data lake is also a suitable data warehouse for your organization in many cases. So lastly, do you want to be a data engineer? So I'm gonna like kind of talk a little bit about this, kind of putting on like my hiring manager um, and coaching uh, hat and, and kind of give you guys an idea of what I look for and maybe some suggestions. So 
you know, if you were to like kind of go over this presentation and kind of wrap all the things that we've been talking about, um, this is kind of like the skills re recap and probably like um, not on purpose, probably matches like some of the, the requirements that you'd see in a job record I personally wrote. <laughs> so, you know, I think the first one is an interesting one, which is analytical and business aptitude. Um, you know, so like, this is not a pure technology thing. I think the, the fact that like when you're building an analytics system very often, especially a data warehouse, you're actually like imprinting, you know, kind of business processes and, um, you know, kind of business definitions and kind of like the language of your business into, uh, you know, the thing that you're building. So really having like kind of understanding from an analyst perspective as a user and also really understanding your business um, is really super helpful. So somebody who, you know, kind of, you know, understands the, the role and, and is willing to kind of dive in and kind of understand the business and business processes. Strong working knowledge of a mainstream programming language. Um, again, Python uh, is very popular. You know, listen, there's probably lots of Go shops out there and people doing this in Java as well, but Python is probably the majority of the kind of data domain strong SQL skills. So as I said, SQL one, uh, when it, can, it comes to data engineering over even over the past uh, you know, couple of decades where we've seen a lot of innovation. So really, really strong SQL skills, you know, the ability to kind of manipulate data, um, use analytic functions and windowed functions, um, you know, really kind of complex crunching, uh, you know, just really, really like level 10 uh, SQL Ninja skills and a working knowledge of the public cloud because <clears throat> much like any modern application, uh, the, you know, the, the infrastructure and the, the kind of like code and the system are all kind of like one thing. So like, uh, you know, making, being able to make intelligent choices about the way you implement things, kind of understanding the features of the services that you're using and characteristics of the services you're using in the public cloud um, is really important. So in my career, you know, like other than people that I've hired that have the title of data engineering and been done, doing it for a while, there were, you know, I'd say like, you know, plenty of exceptions, of course, but I'd say like the two um, most uh, prevalent personas that kind of transferred into data engineering were that of like kind of a data analyst or even a SQL developer. So especially for data analysts, they have like kind of that analytic point of view, right? Um, um, also probably know a lot about like their business or at least have been challenged, you know, if it's a new, new, uh, career been challenged to kind of really understand the business. So really having that willingness, um, where they might be lacking is Python, right? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that's really what I'd encourage. Like if you're interested, if you're a SQL developer, a data analyst, improve your, your Python skills. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be super data analytics, um, specific, Learn Python as a generalist. For our project, you can flex your Python skills. And if that's playing with a Raspberry Pi, if that is developing an API, um, that is totally fine. You know, just learn the language, understand how it works, understand the data structures, um, and and uh, you know the basics, right? And if you're a backend engineer, this is also like one that's really great. They have like a strength uh, more on the infrastructure side. They're probably going to know uh, the cloud a little bit. 
they're also going to have like that rigor, that like kind of professional engineering background. Like they're going to understand CICD. They're going to understand, appreciate unit tests. They're going to understand, you know, how to build applications and all great stuff. Where they may be lacking is probably like the analytical point of view. And they're probably not as good as SQL as they think they are, right? You know, uh, a lot of folks are using ORMs and you should use ORMs, right? Object, uh, uh, what do you call it, like modeling. Um, you know, handcrafted SQL is probably something that they're even discouraged from doing. So, you know, really learn SQL, learn how to do it, uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as an analyst and try to take on an analytical project. project. This is where, you know, uh, might challenge you to try to, uh, you know, do some tutorials, maybe try to wrestle with a Kaggle project, um, you know, try to do something to kind of get you in that, that mindset of analytics and, and brush up and improve those SQL skills. And that is all I have for this evening. Well, awesome. Thanks very much, Elliot. I was going to ask you, if people need to reach out to you, how can they? And you just put it up on screen. So folks watching this, make sure you take note. Find them on LinkedIn. Find them at Capsule. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, Ellie. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot of new stuff, and I know the people who joined us or are going to view this on YouTube are going to learn a lot as well. Um, so just one final question for me. You know, How do you determine what counts as data engineering and what is something else and i'll give you like an example that has some elements of what you talked about tonight but was not really probably as in-depth so like i'm thinking back 15 years i was a lot younger and a lot uh, more naive i guess i was a system administrator at a financial services firm and i worked really closely with our single application developer and like we worked, we got basically some data on a nightly basis from one of the financial institutions we worked with, just a flat file, a record of transactions of the day. And some people in our operations needed to run reports on them. So we figured out how to actually push it into a SQL database in a format that made sense. It created a report that would run for them periodically, like weekly or monthly or something like that, based on just, you know, what to them was indecipherable. And they thought, it had value in it, but they had no idea how to do that. Did we do a data engineering or you, is it a little more involved in that? No, I think you were, you were a data engineer. <laughs> I didn't even so, know. You didn't even know it. So like, listen, I think like there, and there's, listen, a, a ton of like subspecialties, obviously like from ML engineering and, um, you know, so on and so forth. But um, there, you know, I think, I think the thing that's really interesting is that there is like kind of like almost a, if you look at the Venn diagram between like backend engineering and kind of like data engineering, there, there's a good amount of overlap. Um, you know, so uh, I think, you know, data engineering is going to index a lot heavier on kind of like those backend jobs who's ingesting data, processing data, so on and so forth. Backend engineers sometimes do this stuff and like they don't think too much about it, right? But, um, you know, from a specialty perspective, they're probably more focused on building applications and building APIs and building services. Um, whereas, you know, the data engineer index the other side, you know, they might build an API, they might build some internal tool or system to kind of like make their platform more efficient or solve some use case. But most of the work is kind of in that, that crunch from acquisition to final data product. And you made a data product, that report. 
How about it? Well, cool. Well, thanks very much, Elliot. Really appreciate you coming on tonight. And uh, we will uh, say goodnight to everybody unless there's last, any last questions, but I think we're good. And let's see if we come in. So thanks for, very much, everybody.